This is the 12 Songs of Christmas. Today, asking the question, can Christmas songs be cool? My name is Alex Rawls, and 12 Songs of Christmas is my podcast exploring Christmas music. And this week, we have a special episode. Some of the musicians that I've talked to on the show have said that band members weren't always sure about Christmas music, with the underlying complaint being that it's uncool. That's understandable. Christmas music is family music, and most cool music isn't family-friendly at some level. But is the situation hopeless? Is Christmas music irredeemably uncool? Or is it just a matter of finding the right song or the right situation? My guest today to help me get at this question is Joel Dinnerstein, a professor at Tulane University and the executive director of the New Orleans Center for the Gulf South. He is a former DJ for New Orleans radio station WWOZ and has been a part of a number of projects investigating notions of cool. In 2014, he co-curated the American Cool Photography and Cultural History Exhibit at the National Portrait Gallery of the Smithsonian. And he wrote three books on the subject, American Cool, Coach, A Study of New York Cool, and The Origins of Cool in Postwar America. Today on 12 Songs, Joel and I talk about cool and uncool Christmas songs. You know, having written a number of books about cool... Are there are there base are there any simple rubrics that we can sort of bring or think, or measuring sticks we can sort of keep in mind as we start going forward? Yeah, I think anything we're going to call cool in terms of an approach to a song or a song, that it has to be innovative, right? This is a new approach to the song. That if the more it tries to uh, play with the mythology of Christmas or of the song that's coming, the better, right? Um, that it, the more that it approaches it from an unusual musical perspective, right? If you could do a soul version sort of early on before people are doing that. Um, there's a song called We Want to See Santa Do the Mambo. Like, that's a wonderful kind of approach that actually uh, I think is both cool and that it's innovative, it's unusual, and it's playing with the mythology. Um, so those are the things. The more you are either simplistic or kind of really reverent to the song, um, the more it sounds like the Christmas season without either spirituality or any kind of personal spin on it, that's when it's uncool. Yeah. Uh, I'll tell you, I think that's really interesting. Cause it, it's in, I'm going to think it would be interesting to sort of talk about ways in which there are times where cool is code word for interesting. Mm. Because I think the, the worst Christmas song is the song you have no idea exists. That the, that the song that sounds so banal that it is the fourth song on a, by an artist on an album by an artist you barely remember and that it really sounds like all the executives, producers, writers all got together to very carefully craft something that would so sit in a niche that like you that, that the niche becomes a foxhole that people would notice it it's right. Christmas music right? right it's not meant to be noticed so yeah the more generic it is the more uncool it is. And I would say, look, let's look at uh, the kind of Christmas songs that 
Bing Crosby or Frank Sinatra sang. If you go back to them, those are good vocal performances, but they're so part of our cultural like wallpaper that it's hard to listen to them fresh. So if anybody since then is trying to do something that is imitative, that's just the most uncool thing you could do. Those guys wouldn't want you to do something imitative. Right, right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So, well, I think we'll continue this conversation as we move forward, but I want, but I think this conversation will also be easier as we start to apply it. So I think I'm sort of putting my thumb on the scales with this choice, but we're going to start with uh, the Ray Conniff Singers from 1965, and this is Here We Go, A Caroling, and we'll decide afterwards, cool, not cool. I don't think we have to go a long way on that one. This song is the reason cool was invented. Yeah. It's, it's like if you can stay in the room for more than 10 seconds, you might be uncool. It's like it's it's hard to even tolerate. It has a really corny beat. Uh, the voices are the kind of thing you'd hear in a church group, but without the spirituality or the belief or the faith. So it's just terrible. It's like your ninth grade senior chorus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and then it switches gears and seems to get even worse when they add more voices. And then they're talking about their neighbors as if like this is some sort of, you know, wonderful rural paradise. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I tell you, it's, mes it's mesmerizing in its uncoolness. Yeah. It, I got to say, it's one of the reasons I, I picked it for two reasons. Partly because I have to admit, I have one of those places where nostalgia kicks in oh. is that when I uh, is that when I was when I was young, that my my bedroom was right next to my father's study, and during Christmas season he would have the local easy listening station on, and that kind of thing was very big, and so these kinds of sort of faceless stacked vocals are that there's a that right. they know how to get around all defenses. Um, yeah, no, it's you wanted to set up a baseline of what's uncool and, and what does it, and it reminds me in a nostalgic way that's analogous, is uh, when when I was a kid in that period and we used to drive to rel there was a guy who used to drive us certain places um, to cousins' picnics, and he listened to music on the car stereo. Wow. And he would tap his fingers on the steering wheel as if he was <laughs> actually listening. <laughs> And I was only like nine, and I knew this was unbearable. So that's what it reminded me of. Wow. <laughs> so the uh, other, other reason I, I brought it up was I was thinking, and I think this might be one of the sort of, sort of like cool traps, mm -hmm. or is that in the uh, early 90s, sort of following grunge and following that sort of level of, of, uh, of, of punk and rock, that there was a... Um, it was a lounge 
music slash hi-fi uh, you know, renaissance where all of these records were, were back in the world and that they became at least, or people would claim they were being cool. And it was sort of, I suppose, because it, was, it existed in opposition to whatever the dominant moment was. But I kind of wonder if that's a trap or a way to like sort of rationalize. Is that, is that a way you sort of rationalize your mediocre choices? Uh, well, that's an interesting way of putting it. Um, actually, there's like an album of the 90s called Martini Mistletoe, which is right in that zone. Um, you know, part of the problem with sort of assessing things as cool as uncool is that sometimes they're simply counter reactions. And that's going to be subjective in terms like I thought that was truly uncool, but I was coming from a previous generation. People I knew who were younger thought the entire swingers, martini, lounge, no matter what you applied it to, was either cool or ironic in a cool sense. I just didn't feel that way. Sure, sure. So it is a trap, but I think it's subjective. I, can't, I, think, I don't think you can sort of make a claim in a way that we all think that, uh, really, I think we all think that Ray Conniff cut is pretty uncool. Yes. And I think it'd be more difficult to find consensus. Yeah. If you, don't, if you do think the Ray Conniff singer's uh, song track is cool, we probably don't share values. Right. Then cool is not for you. Yes. <laughs> it's like, then you're not interested. I'm fine right, with that, right, but right. you're not interested. So now we're going to go, this is a little on the nose. But I think at the same time, I think if, as we're sort of boxing the compass here, <laughs> that uh, I think this makes sense. This is Louis Armstrong from 1953, and this is Cool Yule. I'm going to island to the Sunset Strip. Somebody's going to make a happy trip tonight. While the moon is bright. Gonna have a bag of crazy toys To give the corners of the girls and boys So day Santa comes on day You come a-calling when the snow's the most When all your cats are sleeping warm as toast And you gonna flip with old Saint Nick Raise a lick on a peppermint stick You come a-flying from a high Stocking by the fireplace, so you have a youth as That's just a great arrangement. Yeah. Yeah, that I was just thinking is like periodically I have to say, since we're in New Orleans and where you know Louis Armstrong is just such an icon, there are times where it's easy to lose him in the iconography. And and now, and because so many musicians in town have kind of grabbed onto a piece of Louis Armstrong and said, you know, I'm I'm in his, you know, I'm in the in the tradition as I do this little part of it, that it's really easy to kind of lose him. And I was just thinking during that, it's like everything about this track is a monster. Oh my God, it's such a hip song. It's a hip arrangement. It's a really hip vocal. It's a really hip vocal. And what Armstrong does is he takes Christmas as a given. And first of all, he puts, you know, what was jazz slang at the time? He's going to bring you crazy toys, right? Um, and 
And part of that language was Armstrong's. There is articles in the 30s that basically jazz slang. He's one of the early people who brought it up from New Orleans. Um, so he just makes this interesting mythology as if you could say, look, even Christmas can be cool if you put your spin on it, which is what he's doing and what he's saying about it. He said, well, part of it's good. You sit by the fire, you open toys. What's bad about that, right? Yeah. Um, but the actual arrangement of the song is very hip. It swings. It has that little ascending thing when it stops and the rhythm is kind of shifts. It's just a great cut, and I haven't heard it in a little while, so it sounds even fresher and better. And of course, you know, just saying "cool you," which seems both on the nose, but but probably nobody would have said it before about 1940. Yeah, um, was just that's what I mean. It's cool when you take and do something with the mythology, and it's just very simple. It's like since "cool and you" rhyme. Let's do that and figure out what it would mean to say, here's what a cool Yule would look like. Right. And without, as Armstrong would, without rebelling against it. I mean, there's nothing he's saying that says Christmas is uncool or this is all for kids. You know, it's all, well, you can do it. Just figure out how to put your own spin on it. Yeah. And, and I think part of what I find like so appealing about that version is that is how thoroughly he commits to it. That there is no moment in there where he's winking, where he's like signaling, right. look, everybody, doing a Christmas song. Right. That exactly. it was a, uh, that it's 100%. If I'm in, right. I'm in and I am making a Christmas, and I'm making a Christmas song right. that's worthy of being my Christmas song. And actually, just the two words, cool Yule, does a lot of the work for him. It's like no one had done it. And then the question is, if you just saw the title, well, how's he going to make that work? So he's, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it wasn't his title, I don't think. Um, but that does a lot of work for him. Right, And right. then he just says, I actually think you can hear Louis Armstrong thinking, well, how do I make this cool? Right. And then he does. Well, you know, the other thing I've been, I've been thinking about recently when I was, and it kind of occurred to me as you were talking, was that uh, the Christmas songs don't, you know, in a way sometimes cue you that, whatever your Christmas practice is might not be everybody's Christmas practice. Right. And I think about uh, la in the last season, I talked with um, a critic, David Dennis, about Outcasts' uh, Players' Ball and the idea of a Christmas song that isn't even remotely about trees and it is about an entirely different kind of community get-together on December 25th. And it's like, you may not have had a, you know, a Christmas that sounds like Louis Armstrong's, but I, have, but I listen to that track and I'm like, I know there are people who aren't just loving that song as a cool swinging track. They're mapping real life existences and real life experiences mm -hmm. onto that beat, onto that, onto that, uh, that feeling, and that that's telling you that there are more Christmases out there than you necessarily went through. No, I agree. And those are the kind of songs I really like. Let's, let's see what these people are doing. Beyond the people who are being, you know, sometimes arch and interesting, um, and not even arch, like, you know, Robert O'Keen's Christmas for the family, you know, Merry Christmas to the family, is a great song that some people like because they think it's ironic and winking, and I actually don't think he's doing that. He's just saying, here's a realistic song about your family getting together is really like. Yeah, uh, last, uh, last year, or last season, uh, I interviewed Robert Earl Keane uh -huh. about the song, uh -huh. and that was one of the things he said was that there was more truth in it than people wanted to realize, and he said there, he had, I'm trying to remember who in his family, if it was his mom or his aunt, who was really mad at him. 
because she because it was like that you know you know you know have you heard all the terrible things that Robert is saying about us? Right. Don't don't share you don't advertise our dirty laundry in public. Yeah, the family recognized this was not a tall tale. Yeah, that song has always sounded to me like it was real and not winking. Yeah. So, talking so you mentioned uh, remaking and reinventing, and so I think that's going to get us to a good place with this track. But I want to go back here a little farther back. This is 1938, and this is Fats Waller's "Swinging Them Jingle Bells." Should have been on Sesame Street, right? If Sesame <laughs> Street existed, that would have been the perfect opening for all the Muppets to argue about what to do with that song. Oh, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's that's just funny. Yeah. The uh, and to me, that's sort of the you can hear. I mean, part of what I love about that track is that he literally lays out his own sort of ambivalence. That on one hand, you know, who doesn't love Christmas? Yeah, I'm in for I'm in for this, but there's also the the other voice that's like, "What are you doing playing a Christmas song?" <laughs> well, you know, he plays it first, and he's not even. I mean, Fats Waller is a virtuoso. He's not even committed to how he's actually swinging the beginning. He's just like going through the motions, and then he goes up an octave to see if he could get more interested in it, and then he does falsetto, and he's which he can do in a way that is singing, and he's not even really singing. So then he drops an octave in his voice to say, as you say, what are you doing? Like he's having a dialogue with himself, right? And, and at that point, the moment when the saxophone comes in, he goes, oh, all right, well, we can play this. Yeah. Yeah, and then it becomes kind of a jazz tune. But before that, he's just going, I don't know what to do here. Yeah. Which is why it would have been great to have the Muppets. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and I think, say, part of the beauty of that, I think, I mean, is, the, is that sense that, that that we're hearing him work it out live, that you know right. doing that doing right. that with the with the tape rolling and right. figuring out what am I going to do? Yeah, this is, is one of the great things about jazz musicians is sometimes you get to hear them think through whether it's a solo or whether it's an entire arrangement, especially when you have guys who are you know sort of geniuses like Fats Waller. Like you can, you know, we're just going to do it. I mean, one of the stories about Fats Waller is that he would say he's going to write a song and write it literally in the cab ride on the way to the gig for someone else. 
And like, I don't know how smart you have to be to do that in a half hour cab ride, but wow. Those are, he wrote many songs yeah. at the deadline that way. So that's so in this sense, it's like, all right, what am I gonna do here? Well, you know, and it what's interesting is that this would eventually become, you know, a thing because there are, you know, there are so many great jazz versions mm. of Christmas songs. Yeah. And, you know, as as a number of people have pointed out, these are you know a lot of these songs are really sophisticated songs, and they have such strong melodies that they really do give a musician a lot to chew on, and and you can hear Waller's like I don't know where I'm going to go with this, but if you give me three minutes, I'll find it. I think that's exactly right, and I don't know who was playing uh, the saxophone, the um, alto at that moment, but. I think that's when he, that guy took it seriously. He entered seriously. Right. And so then Fats Wild said, all right, it's a tune. We can do it. Yeah. And so at that moment, you know, it's like, all right, he figured it out. I can just ride along. Yeah. Yeah. That's but, what it seems like to me. The, um, now I'm going to go here to actually, uh, which is something I think an, an actually end to end great uh, Christmas album. In 85, uh, there, an album came out on the title Mr. Santa's Boogie. Uh, which is a collection of uh, music uh, on the uh, Christmas music on the Savoy Jazz label, mm. and reissued in '94 under the name Christmas Blues, uh, but it has like uh, Big Maybell singing Shiloh, uh, "Silent Night," and uh, it has I uh, hmm, can't remember now Charlie Parker Christmas uh, doing a, a Christmas cover, and this is does, actually I think one he does White Christmas. That sounds right. Yeah, uh, and this is I think my favorite track on it. Uh, it is. By is a by someone named Jimmy Butler. It's from recorded in 1954. This is the last thing evidently anybody has heard from Jimmy Butler. Uh, that he's like known for this one song. The song is called "Trim Your Tree." Uh, later on, when uh, Tony 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 uh, R&B group recorded a uh, a Christmas song, that they sample this. I think there's this another. Uh, there's one more sample of it. I can't remember. But anyway. Uh, we will start that, and then we can talk a little bit about this. So I think this is one of my favorites. Christmas balls. I'll sprinkle my snow upon your tree and hang a mistletoe on your wall. Baby, I'll make you cheery. Baby, you'll call me dearie. Baby, I want to trim you a beautiful Christmas tree. Ah, well, that's, that checks all the boxes on a cool song, right? <laughs> It's like you play with the mythology and you really play with the mythology, right? That's like a totally body song uh, about being with your girlfriend <laughs> 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 and using and gathering all of the Christmas mythology uh, to advertise your own sort of potency and skills. I yeah. mean, a hatchet? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that takes a little getting used to. Not to mention, you know, you know, he's not really talking about turning the Christmas tree if he's bringing a hatchet. Right. Right. <laughs> so. That also that sounds like a New Orleans. That sounds like a New Orleans R and B song. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't think it. I mean, you would know more than I do, but 
I don't know where it was recorded, but I know nothing about it beyond it shows right up on this like album. Tommy Ridgely kind of period. Yeah. Um, but no, I I mean, the vocal is nothing to write home about. I mean, it's not a great vocal, but he is totally into it. Like he's he's like really saying this is how it's gonna go down, yeah. right? Um, that's just great. But but and but there's so many surprises. That's what makes it cool. A hatchet. He's bringing his big Christmas balls. Um, everything about that song is this is how Christmas works for me. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You get a feeling that this is a guy who buys himself Christmas presents and, <laughs> and but, says and says to, to says to not just his girlfriend, any woman, why don't you come over? We'll open some toys together. Yeah. Exactly. Right. right. He doesn't really mean what he bought. Yeah. The sort of bluntly, does making things sort of racier make them cooler? If it's unexpected, yeah, and if it's obvious, no. It's like Christmas, it's an easy thing to think you're being cool with a Christmas song to make it racy. It has to be more creative, or it has to be, like in that song, over the top. Right. Or it has to be in a period in which it wasn't really being done, which is also true. It's pretty early to do that, at least on record. Adding a sexual note to, to, the, to, to Christmas experience, there's no, that's not a part of the Christmas mythology um, the idea of making it... Well, that's know. the period when it starts, right? You have, you know, Eartha Kitt's Santa Baby, and, you know, you have the beginning of sexualizing it, but that's the period it happens. So all those songs are cool because that's what they're doing. Right. But they're doing it because it's new. Right. And the more sophisticated it is, and that song's not very sophisticated, and Eartha Kitt is, um, the more I think it even it's even cooler, and then once it's done, that space is over. Then you have to do something new. Right. Um, you know, so, and I, you know, lots of people have tried. Well, I'm going to back up. I'm going to go on to that thought one more time because I do think there's a little more to, to get out sure. of that. By the, you know, by the start of the 20th century, Christmas had already been largely framed as a family activity. Mm. Uh, that's not, it's, you know, that's not the, where the practice starts. Mm. As the practice starts really was, I mean, was pre, you know, was, was pagan, was in, and these were a lot of the activities, you know, were drunken adult activities. And a lot of the whole notion of giving from the haves to the have-nots was reframed and domesticated as giving from parents to kids as a way of essentially keeping the money from leaving the family and keeping some, making so you don't have to deal with the aggressive sort of class restive uh, poor who are who who will take your booze and take your food, but they really kind of don't like you anyway. Uh, and so, by the beginning of the twentieth century, we had already largely made Christmas into a family activity. And so, it seems like part of at this point to go back and actually make it an adult activity and to take kids out of the equation is more is more than just how does it sort of fit into one tradition. But it actually does kind of count as like, you know, at least sort of throwing a forearm uh, shiver to the Christmas tradition. Yeah, I would agree with that. And uh, look, there's the period you talk about. And then there's the World War II period in the late 30s in which between sort of re-Christianizing Christmas and film, Bing Crosby and being neighborly and being and and giving charity, right? But there's also It's a Wonderful Life, which is a great movie, but is also about everything you just said, right? Christmas is about family. Christmas is about your kids. And if you don't have money to share it, then, you know, you feel like you failed, right? right? right. Even 
George barely feels like he's failed, and he's literally the archetypal good man. Right, right. So all of that happens during World War II. So it's really not till R&B takes off in the late 40s. And even then, I think it really starts in the early 50s. And you have, you have sort of, oddly, a kind of new class of listeners that are adults that are happy to be out. And we're going to have Playboy in the near future. And so, but it really does develop. There are all these great songs that are cool because of what they're negotiating. And as you say, becoming adult, that really it's the early 50s. That's when all of that happens. Oh, how interesting. Next up is Dean Martin. And I know in Origins of Cool and Post-War America that you talk about Rat Pack Cool. Yeah. Sure. And so I want to, I will play here Dean Martin uh, in the song uh, Christmas Blues. This comes from 1953. It appears on the uh, Capitol album, A Winter Romance from 1959. And, I, and we'll talk about the cover, which I think is also genius. But let's go ahead and go first uh, to Dean Martin. This is the Christmas Blues. The jingle bells are jingling. The streets are white with snow. The happy crowds are mingling, but there's no one that I know. I'm sure that you'll forgive me if I don't enthuse. I guess I've got the Christmas blues. I've done my window shopping, there's not a store I've missed. But what's the use of stopping? When there's no one on your list You'll know the way I'm feeling When you love and you lose I guess I've got the Christmas blues This is a cool vocal with an uncool background. Not arrangement. The arrangement's pretty good. But the strings really work against the vocal. If that vocals was with a small jazz combo, that would be a really hip song. Yeah, yeah. Um, because his voice cracks a couple of times, he's very committed to telling the story as his own. Yeah. Um, but the thing about the Rat Pack and Christmas music is because of the way the record industry was, even with you know their persona, their known persona, which is still... In 53, it's early. They're not like out yet as complete boozers and maniacs. Um, in this case, I always picture them that if they're doing this live in Vegas, it's a different song. Yeah. It's, it's body. There are references. There are pregnant pauses in a kind of almost literal sense. Right. <laughs> um, and you can just, like, you can hear what he would do with the crowd. But in a commercial market, in a mainstream market, he has to keep it pretty, pretty reined in. And the strings have the effect of sort of domesticating it and making it safe. Right. Whereas with, you know, and it wasn't, I doubt it was Nelson Riddle because it was a little cloying. Yeah. Um, but if that was just him and a piano trio or a little combo, that would have been, that, I mean, I still enjoyed the vocal. Right, right. But that would have actually been a, an actual cool version. Right, 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 yeah. It's the same thing with uh, Merry Christmas Baby, which Elvis later does as a very sort of raunchy read is goes back to Charles Brown and Charles Brown's version is you know uh pretty straight in a bluesy I miss you way but you got to figure that in a small club that was a body that that was a much raunchier song yeah yeah you know I've always thought this is actually I have to say one of the few 
sort of Rat Pack Christmas releases that I actually have much affection for. You do, um, you do or you I don't? I do. Yeah. I mean, not that, that song I like, I don't love. Right. Yeah. Same, it's sort of the same issues, but I think that... Uh, but I, I do like how you can, again, how you can hear Dean in the process of making it a very Dean Martin song. Absolutely. Um, I just love him lingering over the verb, if I don't enthuse. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you can hear him thinking, she actually might not care about me, or this actually might not go well. And the more he thinks about it, the more the story becomes his. Right, right. Because often his voice doesn't break his vocal, right? Yeah. And it happens at least twice in the section you in the part that you played. And I went, that is very interesting. The uh, but in general, I always found that particularly Sinatra, I, I that Sinatra's Christmas songs very rarely hang up a hold for me because it's they always sound like. He's doing the. It's the moment when he does the thing that the industry asks of him, mm. and the moment where, much like the moment at the end of every show, he says, "Well, thank you, everybody." And even though we've told all these uh, all these off-color jokes, and although we've done all this, that you know, the family is really the most important thing. And he does the slight sort of like pro-family benediction at the end of the show. Right, right, right. right. And as, but th- that all, but just like that always sounds phony. The Christmas songs actually sound stiff. And sound like really joyless, like he like he's singing them because he's supposed to sing them, not because he has much fun with it. I think I would probably agree with that. Um, and you know, you know, the legend is, uh, the mythology is that in Vegas, all the Italian guys thought Dean was cool. They really didn't think Sinatra was cool. Like right. the country thought Sinatra was cool, and maybe they thought Dean was cool, but he also, you know, was known as kind of a lush and didn't have any of the pull and the power of Sinatra. But in Vegas, the hard guys and the late night guys, they all thought that Dean was cool and Sinatra was actually personally, you know, not nearly as, you know, strong and admirable. And, you know, and in the classic way, you know, that Sinatra gave a damn and Dean didn't about anything. Right. Right. Yeah. I have to say, and, and, you know, in much of the same way, there's so much Rat Pack couldn't exist today the way it did then for sure i, I love this uh, album uh, this album cover that is the album is called winter romance and first it is a it's a painting <laughs> of a uh of like a, a ski slope uh scene yeah. and someone has has like really badly superimposed dean's face and the faces of two women. And the one woman's face is just kind of like emerging out of like a hump in her shoulders or something. Bad photoshopped, whatever they did yeah. back then. Yeah, pre-photoshop, bad photoshop. And the great part of this is, is that Dean is like hugging this one girl who's in love with him. And he's looking over her shoulder at the blonde that looks a lot like Doris Day, who's like smiling back at Dean. And it's like, that is... Yeah, yep. and the the Doris Day, who she looks a lot like Doris Day, is carrying her skis. She's much better dressed. You know, it's like he's hugging a fan who maybe he's there for the weekend. He's looking over her shoulder like, but I'd rather be with her. Yeah. And she looks like that would be all right. So <laughs> it's trying to have the best of both worlds. Right, right. And it's failing miserably on this cover. Yeah, I, I, I'm that I love it. And I, I feel like the cover, I, I think everything on the record gets like a it's like a like a half mark bonus it's like if it's a b it's a b plus <laughs> because it comes with this album cover attached uh, i uh 
however we rate, there's a lot of subjective ways in which we, you know, rate our favorite music. Yeah. And <laughs> I could see how that would frame how you listen to that record. Yeah, so, um, all right, moving forward, um, the Phil Spector Christmas album. Oh, such a great record. Now, that uh, the story that I, I've done some reading on the Phil Spector Christmas album, and and I have to ask you, have you heard Silent Night, the track at the end of it, or do you remember? And you would remember if you had. I don't think so. Because it it is like six minutes, and it starts with with some of the some of the people singing Silent Night, and then Phil Spector goes in. He he goes on mic to do this long, uh, sort of really self-serving explanation of everything. And it's, it's brilliant. It's so I, horrible. I and, think I heard it once a long time ago and then never listened to it again for all the reasons that you mentioned. Yeah, right. It, it, the thing is, it's, like, it's too long to be fun and to right. be ironic in right. a Christmas mix. Right. It's, just, it's a way to stop whatever's going on dead. Right. So anyway, um, but one of the things I think is really interesting is like, this is one of the handful of albums that he that Spectre made with the idea of it being an album. Mm-hmm. You know, you think about so much of what he did and so much of it being singles first, and this was something he actually took on with the idea of making an album. No, I, I, God bless him. It's a great record. Um, it's a joyful record yeah. in the way that Christmas spirit is supposed to be joyful and joyous. And it is a joyful record, and it's not manufactured joy. And the arrangements are really uplifting, but not, they're not cliche. They're, they're not sentimental. Um, it basically stays in the higher register, which sort of goes along with sort of being, a, being cheerful. Right. And everyone sounds like they're having a great time. It sounds like the Christmas party you want to be at. Yeah, very much. And that's, I, very rarely would even say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell you what, the, the, the obvious track to play off this is Darlene Love's uh, Christmas Baby, Please Come Home. Yeah. So we're not going there. All right. I want to go instead because there's a few things I think are pretty cool about this. And because of a couple of things I want to talk about, this is uh, the Crystals version of Santa Claus is Coming to Town. Jimmy, I just came back from a lovely trip along the Milky Way. I stopped up at the North Pole to spend the holiday. I called on old dear Santa Claus to see what I could see. He took me to his workshop and told his plans to me. Now Santa is a busy man. He has no time to play. He's got millions of stockings to fill on Christmas Day. You better write your letter now and mail it right away because he's getting ready, his reindeers and his sleigh. You better watch out. song actually is a guidebook from uncool to cool because the beginning is hallmark 
it's all hallmark. Um, it's all telling your kid about Santa Claus, making it seem real, involving yourself in the mythology, and you know, persuading your kid to write a letter. And the song itself starts out sort of in a reverent way, and then it does two things really quickly that makes it cool. One is the leap up to Santa Claus is coming to town, and then about 10 seconds later, that first drum roll, and after the drum roll, it stays. That backbeat stays the whole time. And once we're there, everything about that song is cool. Yeah. So it's like, great. It's like, I'm sure that's not their intent, right? But that, you know, it's, it's as if, um, I can't remember who the lead singer of the Crystals is at the moment. I think it's Lala Brooks on this track. Yeah, yeah. So, Although there's a very good chance it actually was Darlene Love. It, it sound, that's why I want to sound yeah. like that. It wasn't supposed to be, but I, Darlene, Lala Brooks would have been the leader, would have been the head of the, I think would have been the leader of the Crystals at that point, but I'm pretty sure it's actually Darlene Love doing the vocal. But it's she's not, she's trying to sell it in a maternal way. There's, it's not that it's BS or anything. But it's very traditional, late night, hallmark, you know, put your kids to sleep. Everything about it is unsurprising. Right. And even the song starts in a way that's unsurprising. And then it quickly shifts into a gear in which they completely redo it. Like, you know, when Santa Claus comes, it's going to be really fun. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know, it was funny. I've been thinking about listening. I've been listening uh, to Springsteen's version of Santa Claus is Coming to Town. And it obviously was inspired by Phil Spector's version, but I realized when I heard the, that drum fill, which I'm fairly sure is Hal Blaine, that that the drum fill is what dictated Springsteen's arrangement. Oh, I agree. Because that drum fill is exactly what Weinberg, Max Weinberg plays. Yeah, no, and Springsteen does the leap earlier in the song, and you know he, but and and there's none of the. When Springsteen does his opening, usually, um, it's really fun. Like, everybody joins in on the fun. It's neither cool nor uncool. He's having fun with it, right? And he's going, you know what time of year it is, you know? But he's not really mocking it. He's just saying, you know, well, it's that time of year when we hear a lot of Christmas music, right? right? So he's setting you up to do it, and they usually have the bells playing in the background, and then he plays a totally against the grain, seriously rock arrangement. I mean, it's both rock and roll and Phil Spector. It very much is this arrangement, just sort of turbo powered. Right, right. Yeah. Um, and he plays Clarence as Santa Claus, you know, in a sort of interesting racial thing that is either makes you uncomfortable or you find funny. Right. You know, in which he does the ho 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 hos. Um, and uh, and it's just, I mean, I mean, when I was a kid. I just thought it was one of the greatest rock songs. Yeah, me too. The tell you, two things interesting about that about the opening to this. Mm-hmm. The the first part, um, you know, I just came back from the North Pole. Mm-hmm. Um, Saw that, Santa's workshop. Yeah, yeah, I mean that that's that's part of the original. That that actually was written for the original version. Mm-hmm. Um, as it hasn't always been performed, mm-hmm. but it was written. Mm-hmm. And there's a real tradition going back to uh, "Twas the Night Before Christmas." Of basically somebody to witness that Santa's real, and that makes that makes the whole makes the whole sort of Santa game work. Is like there's somebody to tell you it's real. But the other cool, th- other interesting part of this is that basically to make that introduction go longer, so that when the whole sort of wall of sound kicks in, mm-hmm. that Phil Spector wrote the second part about 
uh, you better, you know, the second part about, uh, you know, Santa's a busy man. He has no time to wait. Uh, and so he's encouraging Jimmy to, she's encouraging Jimmy to go ahead and like get your letter off or something. That was written by Phil Spector for the occasion. Because oh. uh, it's a little bit out of the voice of everything else in the song. Yeah. Uh-huh. Because it's basically Santa's like, you know, Santa doesn't have time for you to drag your ass around, Jimmy. Come on, hustle. Get <laughs> that, snapped to that it. That is true. It's like it's happening soon, yeah. right? But I think that that arrangement gave everybody permission to have fun with that song, right. to make it a rocking song. I mean, not just permission. Like, it was a roadmap. Here's right. how you do this. Well, the other part of that is I just remembered that, I mean, Spectre completely record, he, re- he did, you know, changed the chords, because actually the chords in a lot of it right. are based on To Do Ron Ron, because he was picking, right. up the, uh, picking up at that point the popularity of To Do Ron Ron and using that as kind of the model for this version. Well, yeah, and what uh, it's, you know, first of all, it becomes an adult song, particularly when Springsteen does it, but even here, like, even though it's presented as a family, sentimental, hallmark frame, it's still kind of an adult song when it's being played, when it's being sung. But what Springsteen does is not only that, he emphasizes without ever changing the words the naughty and nice opposition, right? As if it's about sex, right? Um, completely. And then he adds that sort of bridge, you know, he sees you when you're sleeping, and he, yeah. he changes that, and then Clarence Clemens becomes the voice of Santa Claus. Right. So, like, by the way, Santa's black, right? Yeah, so, yeah. So that's, and that's not stated, it's just very sly, you get it or you don't get it, and it just, again, any song that opens a door, as this song does, which is what I said, when it goes from, this is how uncool Christmas works, and this is how cool Christmas right. might work. You know, yeah. you gotta love us. You gotta love a song like that. I gotta say, I'm gonna tweak one thought yeah. in there because I think, I think what's great about the song is not that it's an adult song, but that it's a teenage song, oh, and I that, like that it's very much like about about love yeah. and, about, and about the abstract teenage notion of yeah. love. Uh-huh. Um, and with the knowledge that back in there somewhere, there's something else going on. Uh, but it is like, like I think in that opening. When uh, she's singing, you know, about all these, I think the next line could always be, and Santa says, Santa thinks you should kiss me. <laughs> <laughs> it's like taking a part of Santa Baby and putting it into this song. Yeah. You know, but this is actually another, in a way, is another aspect of cool. Um, somebody once said, and I don't remember, that everything Phil Spector touches turns to Phil Spector, right? Right. And someone actually also said separately, when Springsteen was producing uh, people like Gary U.S. Bonds in the early 80s, that everything Springsteen touches turns to Springsteen when he produces, right? But that is actually an aspect of cool. If everything you do has your own personal spin and style on it, then that's in effect what cool is. And if you can do it with something as uncool as a Christmas song, then yeah, there we are. Yeah, and, and I think, and, and I guess, and, and what sort of build a little on that, and part of what I think is so interesting is that the, you know the the subject matter of of so many Spectre songs, not just the sound, right. but the subject matter really is kind of teen is teenageness, Absolutely. right? And and teenage love is a part of it. And the ability to actually sort of drop your subject matter or your at least or at least you know your subtext into everything you do, even into Christmas. That's 
That's cool. No, that's exactly what I meant, that that's what Spectre did, right? He made everything into teenage love, whether that was his own personal view or not. It doesn't matter. That's what his production genius was, right? Right. Which is why, for example, when he tries to do a really adult album, like when he does Leonard Cohen's Death of a Ladies Man, it completely fails. This right. is not something he knows how to do. Yeah, exactly. Thanks to Joel Dinnerstein for the time and the talk. And I expect we'll talk to Joel again over the course of this Christmas season. If you have comments or questions for him, you can find Joel on Facebook at Joel Dinnerstein with one N. And you can leave any questions or comments from me at 12 Songs of Christmas. If you're listening to this on the 12 Songs homepage, you might want to subscribe to the podcast at the Apple Store, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify so that a new episode will show up wherever you listen to podcasts every Wednesday between now and Twelfth Night. We'll finish today with a song I referenced in our conversation. When we talked about Jimmy Butler's Trim Your Tree, I mentioned R&B group Tony 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 sampling it in their Christmas song. Here's that track from 1990, My Christmas. Talk to you next week. Now, all right, now, all right, now come on, girl, I want to trim your tree.